0: Let's open with a brief word of prayer. Oh, Father, would you help us, help us to rightly divide your word? Would you use it to pierce between joint and marrow? Would you cut to our very hearts? Show us that we must have allegiance to the king who secured the kingdom forever. We pray in his name. Amen. Onward, onward, they fail. That was the battle cry that rung out on June 24th, 1314. It was called the Battle of Bannockburn. In it, the Scottish army routed the English and in so doing secured the throne of King Robert the Bruce. The kingdom of Scotland was secured. Like so many other kingdoms, It was not secured without the shedding of so much blood. A very bloody battle was fought on that day. We come to a very similar sort of place in the history of God's people, and the history of the kingdom of God. We come to a place where the kingdom is in peril. It must be secured, and as we will see, much blood will be shed before it is safe. Last week, we saw King Solomon, against all the odds, he ended up on the throne. Some kingdom servants did some backroom dealings, and in the end, God's promise came true. David's son Solomon sat on his royal throne. But it turns out his grasp of power is tenuous. The throne is still in peril. He has many enemies. How can Solomon ensure That his kingdom will be secure. That's what 1 Kings chapter 2 is written to show us. How the kingdom was secured for the reign of Solomon. It comes through the advice of Solomon's dying father, King David. He has two instructions to his young young son of a a king. Two instructions that are necessary if the kingdom is to be secured we will use those two instructions to guide us through this passage and, and learn something along the way about how we can find security in the kingdom of God that was established forever. Those two instructions are as follows. First, the king must devote his heart to God and to his word. The king must devote his heart to God and to his word. And second... The king must deal justly with friend and foe. The king must deal justly with friend and foe. Let's begin with that first instruction. The king must devote his heart to God and his word. You see that in verses 1 through 4. We're told that David's time to draw, die had dr- drawn near. We're coming to the end of a great dynasty in the making, we come to the end of mighty King David's life. And as so often the case, his final words carry great importance to them. He begins by telling Solomon, I'm about to go the way of the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Now, I imagine throughout the history of the world, many fathers have given their sons similar advice. It's time for you to be the man of the house. Time for you to step up and be a man, be strong. But what does it really mean to be a man? Oh, certainly culturally there's much today that would tell us that being a man is about being physically strong. Maybe about being very, uh, very successful in our relationships with women. Or maybe it's about Get, securing large amounts of wealth for ourselves. As uh, Phil Reichen comments in his commentary, David had uh, credentials in all such categories. But that is not what David has in mind. No, he has something much more important in, in mind. A weightier matter than strength, or the ability to attract women, or the ability to accrue wealth. We see what David has in mind is A heart devoted to God and to God's word. That's what he makes clear in verses 3 through 4. Show yourself a man. How? Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as written in the law of Moses. He says, you want to know what it means to be a man, Solomon? What it means to be strong? It means to be a man after God's heart. A man that hangs on every word that comes out of the Lord's mouth. He uses four different words there to describe The word that Solomon is to devote himself to, statutes, commandments, rules, testimonies, each has a a little different shade of meaning, ranging from rules and laws to specific case law within the Mosaic Mosaic writings. Uh, He sums it all up. It's the whole law of Moses that he is supposed to pay attention to. Now, it's not just uh, information that's supposed to be downloaded into his head. It's actually supposed to be a way of life. It's supposed to be a lifestyle. He needs to walk in this way according to God's very word. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise if we had been paying attention to Moses' law and what was written within it. There was actually instructions for how the king was supposed to bathe his heart in the very word of God. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, we see instructions God gave for the kings that would come one day. And it turns out they were supposed to know the scriptures inside and out. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." God had made clear that his kings were meant to be kings after his own heart. And that meant to pay careful attention to every one of his words. David certainly was a man that cared for God's word. Listened intently to the laws of the Lord. He was not a perfect man, but he was a man who loved the law of the Lord. David also tells him that at the heart of all of this, though, is that God is after the heart of his king. That's what you see in verse 4. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David reminds Solomon the key to his prosperity and the prosperity of the kingdom is a heart devoted to the God that they serve. Now, David is asking essentially for Solomon to follow his footsteps. David was not perfect, and yet David was a man after God's own heart. He was careful, he repented quickly, he examined himself against the very law of God, and now he's inviting Solomon to live this same lifestyle so that the kingdom might prosper. Now, I don't think any of us are the anointed king of Israel. And yet, there is much here that applies to a New Testament believer, isn't there? We too need to devote ourselves to God's word. Isn't it true that we need to be people that serve God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind? Jesus told us that the key for our eternal security... Is that building our lives on his very word? He said that was like building your house on a rock. That if you did the opposite, that if you disregarded his words, it was as foolish as building your house on the sand. So we need to ask ourselves the question this morning: Are we devoting ourselves to God and his word? Brothers and sisters, have you grown in your understanding of the Bible over this last year? Is there more that you have found within it? Do you understand more of God by what it reveals of him? Do you find delight in the very words of God? Can you say that about the year that has passed? I wonder brothers and sisters, whether you would describe yourself as someone that is fully devoted to God with their heart. Is your life one of obedience to him? One of joy in the rules he gives you? Or do you imagine that you are a law unto yourself, that what you desire for yourself is more important than what God desires for you? We have much we can learn from this advice from David to Solomon. Our God desires obedience from the heart. And people devoted to him and devoted to his word. I think there's also an application here for leaving a lineage of faith. Uh, I I think there's something quite beautiful the way that David passes on these lessons to Solomon. Shows him a pattern that he can follow with his own life. Now, let's be clear. Faith is not something that is inherited just because you had a faithful parent or grandparent does not mean you yourself will be faithful. And yet, and yet, so often the examples of people that are close to us, even by blood, so often those examples make deep impressions on us. And so we're right to recognize how powerful it can be when we have godly forebearers for us to look up to. While I was in Wheaton, I got to see one such family. They came from generations of missionaries, seminary presidents. They had all sorts of pastors and various ministry roles within their family tree. I got to see the effect that had on the newest generation, the teenagers that were growing up. Oh, Surely, again, this is not something passed on by blood, but what a blessing it is. When those who have the greatest influence on you influence you to devote your heart to the Lord and to his word. I wonder how you are working to leave a legacy for those that will come after you to devote themselves to the Lord. I'm so thankful for so many of you that do that through our children's ministry. You you spend time to try and teach our children to both evangelize and disciple them and give them a pattern for how they can follow Jesus. That is a worthy endeavor. I hope that we as a church never lose that emphasis, that we always remember that unless the Lord should decide to come very soon, that there will be a generation of believers that come after us. And we are right to think, what sort of legacy will we leave for them of what it means to follow Jesus? That's certainly a reason for us to consider how we can raise up the next generation of missionaries and pastors and evangelists. It's certainly a reason to support seminaries and, and do the hard work as a church to disciple young men and women and encourage them toward the ministry. We see here dying David Give Solomon one of the keys for securing the kingdom. He must have a heart devoted to God and devoted to his word. But it's not just a heart that's needed. Now, there are some practical steps that Solomon must take. Some, frankly, blood that must be shed before it can be insured. That the kingdom is secured. That's the second line of advice David gives to Solomon. Not just that the king must devote his heart to God and his word, but that the king must deal justly with friend and foe. The king must deal justly with friend and foe. Solomon is inheriting a kingdom, but he's inheriting one filled with enemies, some of which must be eliminated. David gives him a set of accounts that need to be settled, two negatively, that is two with punishment, and one positively with blessing. We'll look at first at the two negative ones. In verses five through six, he tells him about Joab. Joab was David's former general, and frankly, he is a dangerous, grizzled veteran of war. Joab served David mightily for many years and yet there were several points where he undermined David's authority. He killed Abner, one of David's generals. He also killed the general of Judah, likely in both cases because he felt threatened by them having influence over the army as he did. In both cases, he overstepped his authority and undermined the authority of the crowned king. Well, not only that, Joab had gone out for Adonijah. He had been a part of that coup crew. He was crafty. He was violent. He was absolutely someone Solomon needed to keep a close eye on. And, And David tells him, you need to make sure that when you have the opportunity, you take care of Joab. Don't let him die of old age. Execute justice on the enemy of the throne. He gives similar advice to another man in verses 8 through 9 about Shimei. Shimei is very different. He did not pick up arms against David. Instead, what he did was uh, usurping via a rebellious heart. And assault through words and uh, insults. So uh, it was at at the time when David was fleeing from uh, Absalom. He came across, uh, it was was after David had come to the throne uh, after Saul had died. Shimei was of the house of Saul. And he came across David. And he started cursing him and even throwing rocks at him. Now he did ask for mercy later. And David granted it to him. Which meant David was unable to kill Shimei for his crime. And yet deep down, David knows that this is still a problem. Shimei's heart is not with David and his sons. He is someone that will undermine the throne if he is given the chance. He tells Solomon, you need to deal with him. And I trust you're going to have the wisdom to know how to do this. Now at this point we need to pause and realize that many commentators are very hard at David uh, very hard on David for uh, what they perceive to be petty even bloodthirsty advice he gives to Solomon. Now, Is David acting like Don Corleone here? Is he just as he's about to leave the earth giving Solomon the task of dealing with all the enemies he didn't have a chance to punish? Or maybe even worse, maybe David was just, he knew what needed to be done. He was just lazy or inept. He couldn't do what needed to be done, didn't have the stomach for it, and now he's leaving Solomon to clean up his mess. I don't think that's fair to David, though. Now, I think David is giving Solomon good advice. David knows that politics is complicated, that there are times and opportunities to be able to take care of problems and there are other times where doing so would have grave consequences. He was a wise king and he didn't have the opportunity to bring justice to these who opposed the king and his throne and so he wants to make sure Solomon knows where his enemies live. David also understood the weight of the crown. We have trouble understanding why these men would deserve death in some cases because we don't feel the weight of authority that the anointed king of Israel had. Remember how David reacted to Saul? Even as Saul was trying to kill David again and again, David refused to take up arms against Saul, refused to do anything against him. Why? Because Saul was God's anointed king. Until God removed him, David would not be his enemy if he had a choice. David understood that God's king represented God's authority. And to oppose the king was to oppose God himself. That means these men weren't just rebellious against a political leader. They were rebellious against the very kingdom of God. They were traitors. And their treason was deserving of death. David also knows the balance of justice. You see that in verse 7. He doesn't just have a hit list. He also points out someone that needs to be rewarded for their service. Barzillai. He was someone that helped David when he was on the run from Absalom. Now unfortunately, by the time David got his power back, Barzillai was unable to receive the blessing that he was promised he was too old to come be a part of David's court so David tells Solomon remember his service to me make sure his sons have a seat at your royal table now this isn't an exhaustive list there will be other enemies and friends that Solomon will need to deal justly with but the principle is what's important Solomon must deal justly with both friend and foe if he is to ensure that the kingdom is secure. Now, before we move on to seeing how Solomon will do just that, we need to say goodbye to mighty King David. And in verses 10 through 12, we see the end of his life and the pattern that, David, that will follow for all the kings that will come after him. David was a mighty king. He was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a lover of the Lord. He founded the dynasty that would one day lead to the coming of Jesus Christ. We're told here that he reigned for 40 years. 40 years under which God's people prospered. He wasn't a perfect king, but he was a good one. And that's why David will become the measuring stick for all the kings that come after him. This is the introduction in the book of 1 and 2 Kings to a formula that will follow for every king after David. We'll hear who they are. We'll hear about the length of their reign. If they have notable deeds, we'll hear about those also. And then we'll hear of their death and who will succeed them on the throne. David has done much for the Lord, yet like all that are of sons of Adam, his days came to an end. But his son Solomon, his son Solomon must continue to reign. And what comes next is the narrative showing us how Solomon secures the kingdom under the advice he received from his father, David. That last verse there in that section, verse 12, after David was died... Uh, So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Look now at the very last verse of the whole chapter, verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. That's a, a literary feature there to begin and end. A top and a tail, a bookend, whatever you want to call it. It's a way of telling us this whole section is about this. This is how Solomon ensures that the kingdom is secured. How is it that that happens? Well, it's by eliminating his enemies. Eliminating his enemies. There's, there's four examples. We'll move through them quickly here. In verses 13 through 18, he deals with Adonijah. Adonijah, that pretender to the throne, motivated by sex and power, he makes a boneheaded, bold move that ends up costing him his life. He goes to Bathsheba and asks her help in order to get Abishag the Shunammite as his wife. That was David's hot water bottle, remember? The woman that uh, won the beauty contest to, to come and try and warm up the frigid old king. Now, that may sound innocent enough, even if a little creepy. And yet, if you understood how wives of kings and harems worked back in those days, you would know it is a power play. To control the harem is to control the kingdom. Adonijah is making another play for the throne. It's made clear that he still thinks he's the rightful, deserving king in verse 15. He says, uh, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israeli, or Israel fully expected me to reign. Well, as one commentator, Paul House, puts it, unfortunately for Adonijah, Bathsheba does exactly what he asks. Some people think that Bathsheba's being naive, that she was manipulated by Nathan into being part of that plot last time, and that here she's manipulated by Adonijah into going and asking something of David. But I, I don't think that's fair to Bathsheba. No, I think she saw the wisdom of Nathan's, uh, of Nathan's plan, and I think she sees the opportunity of Adonijah's foolish request. She goes to David and asks exactly what Adonijah asks for, and she doesn't sugarcoat it at all. Predictably, Solomon sees right through the plot and flies into a righteous rage. In verse 22, he says, How in the world can you ask for this? Ask for him the kingdom also. This will cost Adonijah his life. Now, it's important to note this is not Solomon. Being petty, just being thin-skinned and flying off the handle because someone slighted him. No, this is him understanding what's at stake. The kingdom and God's promise. Notice in verses 24 and 25, that's exactly where he goes with it. The Lord God established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised. Adonijah shall be put to death today. Adonijah crossed the anointed king of Israel. He was a traitor to the throne. And Solomon understood. If God's promises are to be true. And his people are to be blessed. Then he must be put to death. Benaiah does the deed for Solomon. And thus puts an end to the pretender to the throne. Adonijah. The next person to be brought to justice is Abiathar the priest. We see that in verses 26 through 27. He was motivated by something different, by power and influence. He was the priest that had served David for many years, but had over time fallen out of favor, and he joined Adonijah's coup crew in doing, rebelled against the true king of Israel. Now, Solomon shows great restraint with Abiathar. Instead of killing him, he sends him into a sort of exile. He strips him of all his titles. He makes him a nobody, but he doesn't kill him because he served David and he served the Lord as a priest for so long. Now there's a really important note there in verse 27. The justice that Solomon gave to Abiathar is actually God's long-suffering justice on someone else, the house of Eli. Maybe you remember back in 1 Samuel, there was a priest named Eli who had wicked sons. God pronounced judgment against them, that they would be stripped of the priesthood. All these years later, Solomon's action brings that judgment to fruition. There's a third enemy that is eliminated. That's Joab in verses 28 through 36. Joab has different motivations that lead to his undoing. In his case, it's power and violence. He hears about the fact that Adonijah has been dealt with, and immediately he decides it's time to try and save his own skin. He he makes a beeline for the tabernacle. He pulls that old move of holding on to the horns of the altar. I mean, it saved Adonijah. Maybe it will save him also. When Benaiah is sent to execute him there, he hesitates, He doesn't want to kill anyone in the presence of the tabernacle. But we see in verse 31 that Solomon has no such difficulty. He says, go ahead and kill him right where he stands. Then he gives the reasons why. In verse 31, blood guilt. He was a man that murdered innocent men. There is a debt that must be paid in blood for righteousness to be established and justice to be done. And then again in verse 33, do you you see how he roots this in God's promise? There will be judgment for Joab, but for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. God's anointed king, giving God's justice to a wicked sinner who rebelled against the throne. There's one more enemy to be eliminated. That's the shadowy Shimei. In verses 36 through 45, we see Solomon begins by showing a great deal of patience He gives Shimei a chance. He puts him under house arrest in Jerusalem and says, as long as you don't violate this house arrest, as long as you stay put right where I can watch you, then I'll spare your life. Well, the only problem is one of Shimei's slaves runs away. And it's revealed that Shimei cares more about money than he does about his allegiance to the king or obedience to the king's commands. Solomon understands this is his opportunity. When he hears of it, in verse 42, he summons Shimei. And he reminds him of the oath that he swore and the penalty of death to break it. And then he reminds him of the longer standing debt that he has. Reminds him of all the harm that you did to my father, David. And then he executes this enemy to the throne. The result of all of this is what we are told in verse 46. The kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. A lot of blood was shed, but at the end of the day, it was ensured that the kingdom was secured. Justice was done through the authority of the anointed king, Solomon. Now, what in the world... Do we as New Testament Christians have to learn from such a bloody, frankly, politically motivated at many spots? What, what What do we have to learn from a passage like this? Now, this is one place where it's very obvious that when you're reading through the Old Testament, it is a dangerous thing to just look at what someone does, even someone that's considered righteous, and just say, blanketly, I'm going to try and be like that person. It's a really bad idea to think this is teaching that we should settle all the scores with our enemies. That we have license to use any means necessary to punish those who have wronged us. Now, none of us are the anointed kings of Israel. That would be a faulty way to try and interpret the word of God. Instead, we need to learn the principle that whenever we are reading an Old Testament narrative in particular... That the people in the narrative, somehow or the other, are related, connected to the people of the new covenant through history and ultimately through Jesus Christ. I hope over the course of our study through First and Second Kings, you'll grow in your ability to, to make those sorts of connections and to make proper applications. But for this morning, allow me to give you three more lines of application for us as New Testament believers first line of application. Learn from the eliminated enemies. Learn from the eliminated enemies. It is a poor, poor strategy to, oppo- to oppose the, uh, the anointed king. And it is a poor guide to follow your desires wherever they lead you in this life. We have a multitude of examples here of different men following different desires, all with the same conclusion, they were on the wrong side of God's king. James 1 tells us that the desires of our heart give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully formed, gives birth to death. If we follow our desires and think they will lead us to prosperity and long life, we will be sorely mistaken and disappointed. Now, especially to those of us that are younger, we need to hear this word because so much of society's messaging to us is the exact opposite. That being true to yourself, that pursuing that which you want the most, that is the way that you find true peace, true happiness. But friends, to follow Jesus, it means denying yourself. Being willing to die to yourself in your desires. To put obedience to the king above those things that you want. Even the things that feel so very right and good. So this day, my younger brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you, will you decide which master you will serve? Will you bow down before King Jesus? Will you obey his direction for your life? Or will you follow the road of your own desires? Learn from the example of these men who followed their desires to their own ruin. Follow the only true guide to your heart. Follow Jesus. Now, just because you're older doesn't mean your heart doesn't have many perilous paths within it. The various desires may change, and yet the same deceitful heart beats within you. So to my aged brothers and sisters, my senior saints... Maybe it's no longer the vices of pleasure that tempt you like they once did, and yet there are many desires of the heart. Pride, selfishness, even a a built-up sort of bitterness toward others. Would you resolve in your heart to release all earthly desires for the true desire of your heart, King Jesus? Second line of application, learn from the long road to justice. Learn from the long road to justice. Even this week, we as a nation grieved the passing of another black man shot down on seemingly an innocent jog, Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, there's still much that will be brought out. Thankfully, there is a trial that will happen, and we can pray that justice will be done. Now, if there's one thing this whole chapter informs us is how important justice is, that we must pursue justice. Now, we may not have the resources as the king and the same level of responsibility, but whatever sphere of influence we have, we should work toward justice. The kingdom can't be secure without it. And no nation can prosper without justice reigning within it. And yet, even as we work toward justice with whatever power we may have, we we need to remember so often the road toward justice is long and slow. And if you notice, in both Shimei and Abiathar's case, the justice coming went on for decades. In Shimei's case, it was the whole reign of King David, about 40 years. In Abiathar's case, it was a whole generation. And yet justice did finally come one day, didn't it? New Testament Christians need to steel ourselves with this sure truth. Justice is coming. Because the perfect king with his perfect justice, is coming to repay each one for what they have done. Jesus says as much to us in Revelation 22:12. 12. He says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. See, brothers and sisters, we need to both work towards justice as we are able, And we need to rest in the reality that no one gets away with anything in this life. Perfect justice is coming one day when King Jesus returns to judge all mankind, living and dead. Third and final application. Learning by leaning on the king that secured the kingdom. Leaning on the king that secured the kingdom. Solomon had two king uh, two keys to ensure that his kingdom would be secure. His heart must be devoted to the Lord. He must pay careful attention to his word. And he must deal justly with his friends and his foes. We are right as New Testament Christians to think of the better king who did both those things better than Solomon ever could. The true son of David who came with a heart totally devoted to his father. Who was obedient in everything. Who hung on every word that came from his father's mouth. It was his very food in his soul. The king who came who fulfilled all the laws of Moses. Down to the very letter. The king who was after God's own heart from beginning to end. That king dealt with his foes and friends far better than Solomon ever could. He settled debts, long outstanding, debts with traitors to the very kingdom of God. He did so not with swords, not with spears, but with a cross. Oh, there was blood that was shed to secure the eternal kingdom of God, but it was his own blood. Blood guilt was atoned for as he gave his life in the place of guilty traitors. And as he did, he transformed those traitors into kingdom treasures. And ensured that the kingdom would be secured forever. What are we to learn from this passage? Well, we are to learn of how good it is to be under the righteous reign of King Jesus, the king so much greater than even Solomon, who secures a kingdom not just for a season, but for eternity. Jesus, by his death, has ensured that the kingdom of God is ensured, now and forever. And brothers and sisters, that means for each of us, We never run out of reasons to worship and trust him. Whether the coronavirus continues for months on end, whether there are grave injustices that come upon the church in this life, no matter how much difficulty we may encounter ourselves, we bow before the King Eternal, the righteous ruler, the one who inherited David's throne. We bow before King Jesus with confidence that his reign is secure forever. Let's pray. Oh, King Jesus, thank you for not treating us as we deserve. Thank you for providing a place for sinners to run to, an altar for us to grab hold of, for blood to cover and atone for our traitorous sins. Thank you for being a king so much better than Solomon, a king that can secure an eternal kingdom for your people. Would you strengthen our hearts with that knowledge this week? Would you grant us confidence in our heart that you are reigning and that you will return to bring your perfect justice? on that day that it will be good to be your friend and it'll be the worst of all outcomes to be your foe. Jesus, would you help us? Help us to be faithful to your rulership in our hearts this week. Help us to live faithfully under your rulership as obedient servants of the kingdom. We ask these things in your mighty name. Amen.